So this concept of quality is is complex and is not homogeneous in all the uh, the different uh, parts of the value chain. And if we would talk about consumers, well, for consumers now, quality can mean something completely different depending on what you are looking for. You're looking for health attributes or flavor or appearance or many other things that consumers consider when they when they purchase their meat. A whole new era of communication in the Canadian swine industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the Canadian and global swine industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Swine It Podcast Show Canada is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Swine Veterinary Partners comprises four well-established clinics across Canada. Precision Veterinary Services, Premier SHP, Demeter Veterinary Services, and Demeter Services Veterinaries. Our nutrition group includes four companies, Nutrition Athena, Shakespeare Mill, Farmhouse, and Nutrition Partners, which serve swine producers all across Canada. Welcome to the Swinet Podcast Show Canada, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the Canadian and global swine industry. Welcome to Swinet Canada. My name is John Patience, and I'm the host for today's podcast. With me today, we have Dr. Manuel Juarez, who is a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lacombe, uh, Alberta. Uh, welcome, Manuel. How are you today? Good. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. I'm, I'm fine. Uh, I'm enjoying the nice weather in Alberta, but it's not common, so no complaints. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Okay. And uh, Manuel, maybe before we get started, uh, can you maybe give us your background so the audience knows? I mean, you have a really tremendous background uh, in genetics and meat science. So maybe give us a bit of a background so they know who is speaking uh, today. I am originally from Spain. I always wanted to be a veterinarian. So I went to college and I became a vet. Uh, I didn't find an attractive job in Spain. So I ended up moving to Finland and working there for for a while uh, in a big farm with uh, dairy cattle. Uh, and pigs. Uh, during college, I had actually worked in the Department of Genetics at my university. And uh, while I was in Finland, they called me back to to start a PhD. And so I went back to Spain, but it was an European PhD. So I spent some time in Italy, some time in Ireland. It was a very interesting uh, experience for me. I also was always interested in businesses, so I, I did first an, an MBA and then I did a, another MBA, but focused on the uh, agri-food sector. Uh, so all that was happening uh, in my 20s. Uh, when I finished my PhD, uh, as I was trying to decide what to do in terms of uh, uh, jobs for, for the future, I, I went back to work for, for the private sector. So I. I work for a goat breeder association uh, in southern Spain that were developing a, a quality label for, for their meat. And after that, I came to Canada. In theory, it was just for a year as a postdoc to work for, for Agricultural Agri-Food Canada. I became a second year. And then uh, I got the permanent position, I guess it was in around 2011. 
And since then I have been working here. My program is lysophenomics. So that means that because of my background, genetics, animal production, and then all my work on meat quality, I'm kind of the bridge between the geneticists and the people working on the, on the quality side. Oh, fantastic. What a, what a background. And um, for those who are not familiar, the Lacombe Research and Development Center has pretty impressive uh, meats facilities and facilities for doing research in meat science and meat quality and so on. So um, I'm sure your skill set fits in very well with, uh, with their mandate. And, and as you said, Manuel, today we wanted to talk about uh, some things like um, uh, quality attributes of pork, um, and, uh, this, this relatively new omic called phenomics. And so maybe before we go any farther, can you explain, because some of our listeners may not be familiar with the term phenomics. Yeah. Yeah. For, I mean, there are several definitions that people use and some people, yeah, may, may, may use a, a more comprehensive definition, but for me, I try to say is, is uh, collecting phenotypes, connecting uh, collecting information from any trait of interest at large scale. Uh, so the, the, the birth of phenomics uh, really came together with the uh, evolution of genomics. Uh, when, when I started in yeah. college, yeah. doing any yeah. DNA analysis, any testing, any genotyping was very expensive. That was the limiting factor in, in most research studies. Uh, but the prices for genotyping really decreased, the technology improved so fast, and the limiting factor, the bottleneck in most research now has become the phenotype. So you can genotype 2,000 animals for a fraction of the price that you could do 20 years ago, but collecting the phenotype is still quite expensive. So, so those of us working on phenomics, we are always looking for ways of collecting more data, still keeping high quality, uh, doing quality control of the data itself. So we had to work with people working on bioinformatics, in biostatistics. Uh, so it's the collection of phenotypes at large scale to be able to uh, to feed either the, the people working on genomics or, or maybe any uh, other type of statistical analysis that couldn't be done in the past because of the limitation of phenotypes. Gotcha. Right. And so, and the limitation of phenotypes is really being able to gather phenotypic information on a large number of animals to correspond to the information you had on the genetic makeup of the animal or the genotype. Have I, am I understanding that correctly? Yes, that, that's, that's correct. And then the, there are additional complexities. For example, we need to have also uh, detailed information uh, regarding environmental factors. Uh, so you want to look at uh, animal growth. Well, you, you need to have information about temperature and humidity and any other things that were happening around the animal, no, the feed, of course. Uh, but then when you are looking at the carcass and the meat quality, well, what was the temperature of the cooler? What was the method used to, to measure uh, any trait? Because sometimes you try to compare phenotypes from one lab to another, or from one year to another, and there have been changes that change the, the value of that phenotype quite a bit. So you need a phenotype, you need the environment, and then you need to connect that to whichever other information you are trying to explore. Great. Okay. So just to, to summarize then, um, so your work would involve uh, collecting information on the, the genotype or the genetic makeup of the animal, 
generally specifically related to the traits of interest. You are linking that to uh, phenotypic data, which is in the scientific world, but in the farm world, they would just be calling that observable traits, right? Whether it's growth rate or meat quality. Exactly. Yes, a phenotype is, is any any trait that has been expressed on the on the live animal or on their product. So in the live animal, we can be talking about about growth, about height, weight, color, anything that you can measure somehow. When we are looking at the carcass and, and, and the meat, uh, it can be again things like marbling or limit gill or anything that is of interest. So for us, it's also very important to to have a high throughput methods. Uh, as I was saying, we want to have high volume of data, but still high quality. So that's something that we have been working on. Uh, for the last few years. In terms of the DNA, what we do is any animal that we are collecting data from, we also collect blood or any other tissue that then we can uh, send for genotyping. Uh, or sometimes what we do is, uh, I have done that in some studies, we we are just collecting phenotypes because we justify that with a different objective, but we collect DNA from all those animals and we just keep it in our freezers until we have en enough numbers to genotype and then we can do these further evaluations. Gotcha. Right on. Okay. Well, that's good. So, um, so this is, this is really interesting because really it, it is becoming increasingly important in animal science research to be able to link the, the genotype of the animal to its, uh, observable traits. Some of those can be easily measured, average daily gain, feed intake, those kinds of things. But when you want to measure marbling or, um, factors like that, they become a little bit more, uh, a little bit more difficult. And some traits, the only way you can measure them would be um, after harvesting the animal. Yeah, yeah, correct. Because marbling, uh, there are some ultrasound methods. There are other techniques that you can still do in the live animal. But you want to measure uh, meat color. Well, there's there's no other opportunity. There's no other way of doing it. Just slaughter the animal, collect the meat, do the blooming, and measure color. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very good. Okay. So with that um, bit of an introduction then, Manuel, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, let's turn our attention then to meat quality. Uh, with Swine at Canada, I don't believe we've had anybody speaking about pork quality yet. So maybe uh, to start with, can you just share with us for a few minutes what you um, measure in order to determine pork quality? What to you, what to you are the traits that need to be measured uh, so that we can say, or a processor can say, this is a high quality carcass or a high quality cut, and this is a lower quality carcass or a lower quality cut. What are the things that need to be measured? Well, it's, uh, we'll see how, how much I can summarize it because it's, it's a complex concept. It's a big question. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> because... I do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> quality is subjective the, to start with. Quality is, uh, uh, I saw a definition that I like years ago, that is quality is uh, any, anything that somebody is willing to pay for. Uh, uh, and it depends. So uh, carcass quality for a producer is going to be determined by whichever uh, payment system they have at the abattoir for their animals. So right now, Limit yield, so carcass weight and limit yield tends, tend to be the, the two traits used in, in payment grids, at least in Canada. 
I saw your animal, depending on which abattoir you send it, there may be penalties for animals that are too heavy or too light. And then they will measure limit yield. Usually, traditionally, it has been done with a, with a grading probe. Now that is changing, but that seems to be still the, the standard. So for a producer, having the right limit yield and falling within the, uh, within the weight range that doesn't create any penalty, that's quality for them. That's what the packer is paying for. But that's a very interesting thing because the packer is paying for that, but then the quality that the buyer is asking from the packer is a different, it's a different concept. Also, so they, they are paying for these very lean carcasses, but then many buyers, especially international buyers, and we have to remember that 70% of pork produced in Canada goes abroad. Uh, and many of these international buyers are asking for, for high quality pork. And when they are talking about quality pork, if they are talking about the loin, they want a loin that has a, a, a nice uh, red bright color, something in, in the scale of three to four in the, in the uh, Japanese or Canadian uh, scale. So it's a color that is not too pale, it's not PSC, but it's not too dark. It doesn't start looking DFD. So something more on the darker side, but not too dark. Uh, then they want high marbling and high marbling has a negative correlation with limit yield. So usually, I mean, it can be selected for both, but usually when you, when you go for a very lean carcass, uh, having high marbling is going to be difficult. Uh, and then another, uh, another important trait on, on the loin is the consistency of the, uh, of the lean. If it's firm, uh, if it's not too soft, again, related to maybe to the concept of PSC, but that's just on the loin. Right uh, then we have other other primers for which the quality is, is different and it's different for, for different buyers. So if we look at the ham, um, most hams in, in North America or at least in Canada, they are selected to be lean uh, because of the way that they are going to be processed. But if you are selling to international buyers or you are selecting your genetics for maybe for European producers as well. Well, they, they are going to want those hams to actually have quite a bit of fat thickness because otherwise you cannot do the processes like dry curing. Uh, and then, and then we, if we look at other primers that nowadays are quite important that, that, and those that have been working more in, in the last few years, like, like the pork belly. Well, the pork belly now is a different, uh, it's a completely different scenario there. So now you want pork bellies to be to be quite firm uh, and the, you want them to have uh, a specific dimensions, especially thickness uh, uh, and width and length. Uh, so again, there may be some negative correlations. So you are looking for a very lean carcass and maybe a, a lean loin, but with marbling. Well, poor bellies that are very thin because they have a very low fat content tend to be very soft. Just because by physics, you cannot have that consistency on the belly and firm bellies can, uh, can be sold at higher prices. And when you have very soft bellies that cannot even be produced, uh, processed as bacon, uh, domestically, then the, the packer loses quite a bit of money. So, so this concept of quality is, is complex and is not homogeneous in all the, uh, the different, uh, parts of the value chain. And if we would talk about consumers, well, for consumers now, quality can mean something completely different depending on what you are looking for. You're looking for 
health attributes or flavor or appearance or many other things that consumers consider when they, when they purchase their meat. Great answer and great explanation. Um, and the fact that it varies with cut, it varies with market and it varies with where you exist in the chain of production, right? It, it's different for the pork producer compared to the packer processor, uh, different from who the, the country in which the product is being sold and the particular product being sold. So it's a, it's a, it sounds like guaranteed employment for life for researchers, uh, Manuel, when you have such a complex subject. But what I would like to do now, if we can, is take advantage of your knowledge and experience and explore a little bit of where you think quality is going in the future. And so from a, the standpoint of somebody involved in production agriculture, somebody who is um, raising hogs or somebody who is um, working with people who are raising hogs, where do you think the, the targets are going to be in the future in terms of, of quality? And is that going to require change at the level of production in order to achieve those uh, quality targets? That's also a big question, yeah. I know. But. Well, I, I can try to give my opinion. Uh, I, I have seen uh, some movement uh, in the pork industry regarding quality in the last few years. And there have been different ways of approaching this change. Uh, pork production, in many cases, is quite vertically integrated. And even when the companies or the packers don't own the, the production facilities, or the, the hogs, they send very strong messages to the producers in way of incentives of, or penalties. So I have seen some cases where if the company is fully vertically integrated, they just can make changes and decide, okay, so we are going to use these genetics, we are going to use this diet, and all our, uh, all our producers have to do that. Uh, now, in, in those cases where the company doesn't, uh, doesn't own the production facilities, what they do is via, as I say, penalties or rewards, they incentivize the producers. So I have seen examples where if your animals are not a specific uh, genetics, uh, they don't have the, the specific cross that we are asking for, then you are going to be penalized. So immediately all the producers pass to use those genetics. Uh, they can go further and say, well, you, you need to use these genetics and these are your only options for diets as well. Because us as packers are seeing that that's what is producing the, the highest quality for us. Uh, so the, these, these movements seem to be happening. Uh, I think quality is more in the minds of, of the whole industry uh, because the export markets are becoming more and more competitive. I mean, right now, pork prices are quite low and it has to do with, it doesn't have to do with the quality of our products. It has to do with the international movements you know, regarding China, regarding uh, Europe, and what they are doing with, with their pork and where they are selling and the exchange rate with Japan. So all these things are uh, in no way under the control of, of pork producers, but you have a higher quality product that you can offer to those international markets, then you may still remain in business. And, and that's something that Canadian pork, I think, has highlight for many years the their quality and their and their service uh, to international buy has been quite high and consistent 
And that's why I think we can still compete in the market even under those conditions. But my, uh, my opinion in terms of the, the approach to quality is that I think packers are the ones who are sending the message to, to the producers either directly or via incentives or penalties. Yeah, and, and the Canadian pork industry has a long history of being very market-focused. And, for example, it goes back to Bacon for Britain programs, which really um, caused a transition from pork being raised for lard to pork being raised for more meat consumption uh, because the British market did not want lard-type pigs. They wanted lean-type pigs. So the Canadian industry, unlike the American industry, the American industry stayed with lard-type for many years after that, but because of Canada's role in Bacon for Britain and membership in the Commonwealth, that was the first time that the Canadian market had to change in response, or the Canadian production had to change in response to the marketplace. And then um, as the Canadian industry grew and more and more pork was being sold in the export market, as you pointed out, Manuel, uh, they, uh, they realized that if they were going to be successful in selling you said now 70% of the pork in Canada uh, is sold in the export market. So that puts a pretty powerful light on to pork quality and signals back to producers. So I think the industry has, has a long history of being focused on quality. I'm, but I'm, I'm curious where you think we're going. What's gonna, do you see any changes in the future in terms of how quality will be measured by you know, what is considered quality 20 years from now, do you think that's going to be different or even 10 years from now will be different than today? Or is it just going to be more of the same? I think the way that this measure is going to change. Uh, I'm not sure about which attributes. I think once that technology evolves, uh, the attributes that are measured will also change. For example, we are talking about the grading systems. Uh, in places like Europe, they're still using conformation, either with subjective uh, evaluation or, or with some equipment. Here in Canada, the grading probe has been used for many years, but the grading probe, well, it's an estimate uh, in a single point. So there are already packets in Canada using other systems. They are using ultrasound, uh, automated ultrasound systems for, for better uh, evaluation. And, and that's, that's only the beginning. There are more and more technologies and there are international companies that are developing systems like dual energy x-ray optiometry but for the for the plants uh, for the slaughter plants and that's already being used in australia for example in the in the sheep and, and beef sector so i think all those technologies will come so there will be a time where we instead of estimating uh, limit yield we'll actually measure it so that would be a change i i think there's another possibility where uh, the limit yield won't be estimated that just in the whole carcass, it will be estimated on the primal. Um, and I think I think there is value on that. Uh, right now, uh, what I see in some plants is they have very good technology that they have either uh, developed themselves or they have uh, acquired uh, nationally or internationally, uh, but they need to have two systems because one system is eval uh, evaluating the carcass as a whole, and that information is used to pay producers. But then the next day, when they are cutting the carcass and evaluating the primal, that's not linked to the producer. Well, it's linked to the producer by a batch, but it's not linked to individual animals. So th that lack of traceability within the plant, 
I think that could change in the future if there is uh, interest by the Packers, if they see value. In terms of genetic evaluation, that would be fantastic if they could actually follow the primal and link the quality of that primal to individual animal. But nowadays, that's not common. So I, I think that may change in the future because technology will just become cheaper and better. And uh, also many plants uh, haven't uh, adopted many of these technologies just because the the setting from the old buildings didn't allow it. I, I know several packers that would like to change the grading system and have some of these automated methods, but the cost of changing the building or even the, the, the consequences of, of trying to get more space don't allow it. it, it it's not financially uh, justifiable. But I think that's going to change. Now, in terms of the traits that we measure, that could change as well. If we have, if we have different markets asking for, for different quality traits, we also have very conflicting interests in a way because we are asking for the producers to be more sustainable, to be more efficient in their production. Then we want very lean carcasses because produ producing fat is, is less efficient and, and more expensive. But at the same time, that's going to decrease quality. So uh, we have to balance that out. And that's what happened. You were talking about, about that change in, in Canada a few years ago. And if we look at the last decades, everything has been uh, focus on lean meat yield production, on getting very efficient animals. And that has been great in, in a way, and genetically you can do a lot uh, in that sense. But as I was saying before, there are some negative correlations to quality attributes. And at some point, there was a campaign calling pork the other white meat, you know, because consumers link that to healthy attributes. But really, if your pork is looking like white meat, you are not eating good pork. So I think in order to, to increase domestic consumption of pork, especially, uh, we need to rethink what we are telling consumers and what we are offering consumers. Because Canada produces very good pork, but sometimes the domestic market doesn't see that pork as often. Uh, and if you don't have a, a, a great eating experience, if flavor, if other attributes are not there, then maybe you won't continue eating that product. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we just had a couple of pork chops on the grill last night, and that was a pretty good eating experience, I can tell you. So, Manuel, thank you. But, Ken, you know, time is moving on for us. May I ask you to just um, briefly summarize what are some of the important messages you'd like our listeners to take away from this podcast? And then I have a few specific questions for you after that. Yeah, I think I think in terms of I think I think it's some uh, the message that I would like somebody to take home from from the conversation is uh, pork quality carcass uh, and meat quality in pork is a complex concept, uh, and I think the future uh, will increase our focus on the individual primal quality rather than just the concept of carcass. And if we can link that to the life animal, uh, then that would allow us to do way more in terms of genetic selection or even improvement of production systems. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good. I like that. That's a nice summary. And uh, it sounds to me, one of the messages buried in there 
is uh, maybe stay on top of the new technology that's becoming available to the packing and processing sector, because that could have uh, that information uh, as that technology is being adopted uh, commercially, that new information may be flowing back to the farm with implications for production practices. So that's great, Manuel. I, I really appreciate that. It's time for our famous three. What I'd like to finish off now is to just change gears just a little bit. And um, we'd like to ask three questions of our guests. And the first question is, is there a, do you have a favorite book related to swine, meat quality or uh, meat science or genetics or anything really that you have found to be particularly helpful to you as a scientist studying uh, genetics and phenotypes and meat quality? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, anybody who wants to get into, into meat science, pork, uh, but all, also in other species, I think Lori's Meat Science, that's the reference book. Uh, still today, every once in a while, I look at it to, to look for some basic concepts. It's, it's very comprehensive. There are some, some very nice books, uh, published recently and I have published some, some chapters in some of them, but actually I think Laurie's Meat Science is, is still the, I won't say the Bible, but it's the reference book for many of us. Right on. Very good. So now I ask you the same question, but not in the area of, of swine, meat science or swine or anything, but just in general, is there a book that you have read that you found um, um, had a... Um, uh, particular impact on you, whether it was a book that was fiction or nonfiction, um, something that you found to be particularly interesting book. Yeah, I, I enjoy historical novels uh, quite a bit. Uh, and maybe one of the first ones that I read was my man's favorite book. Uh, it's called uh, The Egyptian or Sinue the, the Egyptian by Mika Waltari. He's a Finnish author. I read it many years before I even thought of moving to Finland. Uh, and I have read many books uh, with a similar structure over the years, but it's, it's very interesting because it's the, the travels of somebody many years ago, and then you, you are learning about, about history, about geography and, and life long ago. So I, I, I really like to know about history as much as I can, because I think we should learn from from their success and from, from their mistakes as well. Uh, so, so that kind of novel for me is very interesting. You are learning what you are enjoying. The Egyptian. Okay. Thank you. And then my final question to you then is, in your opinion, what sets successful swine professionals apart from those who may be less successful? What are some of the characteristics of a successful person in the, in the world of science, whether it's production or meat science or science or anything at all? What do you think are those traits? For me on the, maybe for all those categories, but especially for on the producer side, I think is, is those who are always looking uh, for better practices, for some innovation, who those producers who don't just continue doing things the way they were just because it's easy. Uh, the producers who want to learn more and to always improve even that little extra step 
to be better, those ones are successful. If you, you just continue doing things the same way and don't look at what others are doing, this, this is a very competitive market in all the stages of the value chain. So, so you have as a packer, as a producer, as a scientist, you have to be on top of the new technologies, of the new findings. Uh, so those who enjoy doing that, the early adopters, the, the innovators, those tend to do better. And the ones who are just at the end of the tail, just waiting for others and following, well, when things go bad, they suffer the most. Very, yeah, very good point. Yeah, it is a, a changing industry. So Manuel, thank you so very much. Um, this has been really, really interesting. I've learned a lot from your comments and, and you've made some thoughtful statements that I want to, after we're done here, I want to think about a little bit more in terms of where the future's going. So with that, then I say thank you very much, Manuel. And to our listeners, I'd like to say goodbye and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jeremy.